Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of the show know, each week my guest and I discuss a the reading, the weekly reading known in Hebrew as the parasha, the weekly reading of the Torah, and seek to discover uh, the essential meaning behind some of the most important aspects of the parasha. This week our parasha is called Lech Lecha. It uh, tells us the story of Abram meeting God for the first time. It begins in chapter 12 of Genesis and concludes with chapter 17, verse 27. Let me give you an overview of this very important parasha before we turn to our guest. In this parasha, God uh, meets Abraham and says to him, Go, lech lecha from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land where I will show you. There, God says, Abraham will be made into a great nation, Abram and his wife Sarai, accompanied by his nephew Lot, and they journey to the land of Canaan, where Abram builds an altar and continues to spread the message of Adonai. A famine forces this first Jew to depart from Egypt, where the beautiful Sarai is taken to Pharaoh's palace. Abram escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister. Back in the land of Canaan, Lot separates from Abram and settles in the evil city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where he falls captive when the mighty armies of Chaldorla Moer and his three allies conquer the cities of the Sodom Valley. God seals the covenant between the parts with Abram, in which the exile and the persecution of the land of Israel is foretold, and the Holy Land is bequeathed to them as their eternal heritage. Abraham and Sarai are childless, but Abraham's, uh, Sarai's handmaiden Hagar conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. And 13 years later, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, the father of multitude, and Sarai's to Sarah, princess and promises them that a son will be born to them. And from this child, who they shall call Isaac, will stem the great nation with which God will establish his special bond. Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and his descendants as a sign of the covenant between me and you. He immediately complies. It is a parasha. Uh, filled with great meaning for the Jewish people and for their descendants. With me this morning, I'm glad to say, is Rabbi Elise Goldstein, who is the founding rabbi of the City Shul, a reform synagogue in 
Toronto, known as one of the most creative synagogues in Canada. She was um, one of the first two female rabbis in all of Canada. In 2005, she received the most prestigious award in Jewish education and was named as one of the 50 most influential rabbis by the forward um, and is recognized throughout the Jewish world for her path-breaking work in Canada. She has published four books on women in Judaism, and it is a great joy to welcome Rabbi Elise Goldstein to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you, Rabbi Garten. And you forgot to mention the most important piece of my uh, CV, which is that you and I worked together joyfully. Uh, You were one of the first rabbis to welcome me to Canada when I arrived in 1983, uh, and we worked together in Toronto for those years, and what a pleasure it was to it, to it was a pleasure to welcome you uh, to uh, Toronto and to see you uh, find your beshert in Toronto. Amen. <laughs> and uh, watch you and your husband uh, give birth to a wonderful family um, and watch you uh, evolve from uh, simply a young rabbi to one of the leaders uh, and most important voices in uh, Reform Judaism, not only in Canada, but in North America. Wow, thank you. Uh, this morning, you uh, told me that you wish to speak about uh, Genesis 17. And so I'm going to read a little bit uh, for our listeners and allow you to focus on uh, the parts that are most meaningful and what you think are important to you. So for those who are following in the text, I'm going to look at Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to him, he said, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my ways and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will make you and your descendants exceedingly numerous. Avram threw himself on his face, and God spoke to him further. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of multitudes of nation, and you shall no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I make you the father of multitudes of nations. I will make you exceedingly fertile and make the nations of you, and the king shall come forth from you. I will maintain my covenant between me and you and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant through the ages, to be God to you and to your offspring. I will assign to you and your offspring to come all the land of Canaan as an everlasting holding. And he said further to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring to come throughout the ages shall keep my covenant, and it shall be a covenant between me and your offspring, and every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin that shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. Well, let's stop there for the moment. Um, and I know you have some thoughts about the covenant of circumcision 
And the this section ends with Sarai also having her name changed. But let's begin with your thoughts about circumcision. So obviously, uh, you know this as well as I do, Rabbi, that there's no commandment in the Torah that's more difficult, more divisive, more perplexing, and more male exclusive than circumcision. And how interesting, and some people think odd it is, that me as a feminist um, uh, works to save it, to to inject into this male covenantal ceremony some sense of meaning other than the lame jokes and the awkward silences that we usually have at a bris. Um, in order to do that, we need to uh, allow ourselves the power of modern midrash, you know, the power of expanding our understanding of what Brit Milah might mean outside of the, any literalism of the text. Midrash here meaning parable, story, interpretation. Um, so I want to get away from the literal meaning of the text, which is that you have to cut the foreskin off baby Jewish boys, period, full stop, um, and look at some, I think, really deep symbolism. I think, by the way, as a feminist, and for our, for our yeah. for our listeners, um, Rabbi Goldstein's use of the uh, metaphoric interpretation of the text is certainly very traditional, though yeah. originally that was a uh, methodology limited to antiquity. Um, it has been one of the primary. Uh, methodologies of reading the text to give it meaning within every generation. Um, so this is an ancient methodology, just with perhaps a uh, modern slant to it. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, before I go into that interpretive moment, I want to talk a little bit about history, just a few sentences to say that all scholars agree that circumcision is probably the most ancient tribal practice we have recorded. And that we know from biblical and other sources that everybody did it. Egyptians, Ammonites, Edomites, Moabites, they all practiced circumcision. But here's what's really important. What's really important is that by all of the uh, Semitic or ancient Near Eastern peoples that lived around the Hebrews, circumcision was practiced at marriage or at puberty as some kind of a, let's say, sacrifice in quotation marks to ensure fertility, Right. By the way, the Talmud, the book of Jewish law from the second century, calls both a groom and a baby ready for the circumcision by the same word, chatan. And that's so, the same and, word that appears later sure. in, also in the Bible. And to remind our listeners, Muslims, uh, practicing Muslims, also practice circumcision, though at puberty. Exactly. So what was so extraordinary, I think, about the Hebrew manifestation of this very common ancient ritual, very common, everybody around them was doing it. What made it so extraordinary was that we were the only ones to do it at birth. And that leads us to ask, what is significant about doing this ritual at birth, number one? And number two, what is significant about doing this ritual only to males? Because you'll notice that never, even in the feminist modern age, but from the Bible onward, never was it suggested that we should do this to girls. Never. So I want to look at why is it significant that it's done at birth and why is it significant that it's done only to males? Um, and why did we move it from adult circumcision to infant circumcision? So a couple of things I want to suggest. There's no question in the first verses you read, Rabbi Garden, that there's a confluence or coming together of fertility and circumcision. 
And we know that, for example, the word for an uncircumcised penis is the same word for an unpruned fruit tree. So there's something in our ancestors' minds about pruning the fruit tree, if you will, to allow for fertility. Now, I want to hone in on why that's so significant that we do it at birth, not at puberty, not at marriage. It made sense when this was pruning the fruit tree to do it at marriage, right? Guys just about to get married. Sure. The symbolism would be very obvious at that point. Very obvious. And even at puberty, very obvious. But the symbolism becomes way less obvious at birth. And so at birth, what the Hebrews were basically saying is, no, 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 guys. It might appear that this is about pruning the fruit tree, getting this male ready for um, procreation, the way a, a fruit tree is pruned. But it's not. It's about something much different than that. And when it's at birth, it is about a covenant, a covenantal sign or a symbol, what I like to say, a post-it, right? In your body, on your body, in your flesh, about the expectations of your sexuality being elevated, being holy, being sanctified, whether you procreate or not, right? That is what is so extraordinary about moving a, let's call it procreation ritual, to a birth ritual. It is saying to this baby boy, and I'm not saying yet why it's a boy, but only boy, but it is saying to this baby boy, guess what? This fruit tree, if you will, that we're pruning, if you will, it's about holiness. Every time you take down your pants, you're going to have a reminder that you are in relationship with something more important than you. You have to use this organ for love. And if procreation, great. If not procreation, you cannot abuse this organ because it has the sign of God on it. It's almost like I say to people at a Brit Mila, you're putting a mezuzah on your body. You know, the, the symbol we have on our doorposts that reminds us that this house is a Jewish house and what goes on in this house has to be worthy of the words of Torah being on the door. And, what you do for, with that has for, to be worthy. For the Go listeners ahead. who may know the uh, Hebrew text, of course, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, um, and it shall be a sign upon your body. Um, so Rabbi Goldstein is following, though in a very unusual way, the traditional notion that we love God not simply in a um, ephemeral way, but in a very uh, physical manner, and that it's a sign on our doorpost, the mezuzah, to which he referred, and it's a sign um, not just on your head and on your arm, which have been understood to be the commandment for phylacteries or tefillin. But here, this wonderful interpretation is it's a sign on the primary male organ, um, which is used not just for procreation, but of course, all day long. So let me just quote uh, from a fabulous Orthodox thinker, uh, Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo in his book on Genesis. This will, this will, I think, underscore what you and I are both saying. In this week's Parsha, he says, and I love the way he puts it, this circumcision is God's seal imprinted on human flesh. It is only proper that this sign of allegiance be imposed upon the body, for after all, it is not the soul that needs to make a commitment. 
The soul is already committed to its mission. It is the body that makes a vow to compel itself to serve God. One, one more thing he says. If the body fails to live up to its lofty responsibilities, the physical imprint of the circumcision serves as a constant reminder of what it means to reside in the presence of God. It is a testimony to one's spiritual obligations and potential. I find that very powerful. Now, now it, it doesn't answer the question of why make this uh, transformation from a fertility cultic behavior to a covenantal behavior solely for males, but I have a sense you're going to offer an interpretation <laughs> of that. We, I definitely am. So then, so that leads me, that beautiful statement of Rabbi Lopez Cardozo leads me to say, well, don't women need that commitment in their flesh also? And traditionally speaking, the rabbis say women already have that incised into their flesh through menstruation, through a monthly um, commitment to pro to bring forth life, to 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 uh, populate the world, and to be partners in creation with God. And so all of the traditional texts that we have on this question about why just males say women already have the sign of the covenant and they have it every month. But I'm going to go way further than that, as you probably know I like to do. And I'm going to say that in our society, at least from Abraham till today, it is men who need this reminder on their organ more than women because it is men who use their organ in inappropriate and improper and violent ways that women generally do not. And so therefore, from a feminist perspective, I want to go with Maimonides, the great medieval philosopher, Jewish philosopher, who says that this is a sign on masculine. This is a sign of masculine um, uh, obligation to sanctity in sexual behavior. This is specifically for men to be sure that they get <laughs> covenanted to their, their organ gets covenanted so that they know exactly what it's for and exactly what it's not for. So the Midrash is very interesting. The interpretation is very interesting. And some of our listeners might um Ask the question, um, are you, Rabbi Goldstein, suggesting that um, males um, need a more constant reminder of um, the inappropriate and appropriate uses of their uh, sexual organs, uh, inherently more, more of a reminder than women do? Well, uh, I am saying that. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, history proves me correct. So until we live in the Garden of Eden again, where men and women are truly equal and both equally responsible to sexual propriety and sexual elevation and spiritual understandings of how to use their bodies with another person, until that time, circumcision is an important reminder, I call it a post-it from God, to those who need it most 
and most often to make sure they use that organ in love and not in violence. So part of what you said would resonate if the circumcision continued to be this latter part of what you said would fit more closely with the notion of um, uh, circumcision at puberty or circumcision when um, the male begins to use his organ for sexual purposes. Um, and does that change the the notion that you introduced about why it occurs at birth? No, actually the opposite. Because remember one thing, this ceremony is not so much for the baby as it is for the community to see the parents' commitment to this child's uh -huh. Jewish upbringing. And let me tell you that if we took seriously this deeper symbolism of restrained sexuality and elevated spiritual sexuality, and we talked about it at Brit Milah, every male there and every teenage boy there and every eight-year-old boy there and every girl there would hear us say, this is a symbol of you are using your body in love and in holiness. Remember this. I think it would make a big impression. <laughs> Unfortunately, mostly what we do in Brit Milah is ignore the sexual part of it and just turn it into an operation followed by a party. And what, now that um, for the last decade or so, you've been working with a community as opposed to when you uh, were the director of Kolel, an adult Jewish learning uh, facility in Toronto, do you find that this message to uh, parents who now have a newborn child resonates with them? Or are they really um, so... Um, immersed in early parenthood that they can't think about their newborn child as a sexual uh, entity yet? That's a beautiful question. And I think the people I've worked with over the last 30 years, uh, or at least in the last 15 years since I've been promulgating this theory, love this. They love the idea that the ceremony is more than cutting off the foreskin and then having herring, you know? <laughs> they love the fact that we've elevated the ceremony into something deeply meaningful. Um, and uh, and it, it makes purposeful the maleness of the ceremony instead of us just trying to ignore the maleness of the ceremony. It makes that purposeful. Well, I guess if we follow your reasoning, then it even uh, conforms to the traditional perspective that women um, are, in a sense, um, holier by virtue of their um, procreation to give birth to new life makes them in and of themselves um, a holy vessel. So I wouldn't say holier. I would say covenanted, that women are covenanted through that, through their bodies being partners with God in the act of procreation. I would say we are covenanted at birth and we carry that covenant with us the rest of our lives. I do, and I want to, before we're gone though, I just want to say one thing about Sarai, but go ahead. No, no. Well, I was going to use it as a transition to Sarai Great. and is, and as Abraham, 
has his name changed from Abram to Abraham uh, with regard to the circumcision is, do we then read um, the promise that Sarah will have a child, even in her old age, as the covenantal means for changing her name? Yes. And I would say that the covenant of being born of a Jewish mother it, the covenant of the womb, if you will call it, if you'll allow me to call it that, as opposed to Brit Mila, I see this as the covenant of the womb, is given to us through Sarai. And it is through Sarai's change of name to Sarah with the hay of God, now in her name, like Avram becomes Avraham with the hay of God in his name. We understand that we become covenanted as Jews through birth in a Jewish womb. Um, or rebirth through the waters of the mikvah, which becomes your Jewish womb if you convert. Um, and through males, we are also covenanted, also covenanted through Brit Milah. Does your explanation, which um, is fascinating, and I'm sure um, listeners who spend some time considering it will also find it a powerful explanation, how does it resonate with those who are unable to procreate? That's a very important question. And I say that we don't personalize Jewish ritual. So that means even if I have a child who chooses not to have a bar or a bat mitzvah, that child is still part of the Jewish community. I don't personalize that. So I t say that we don't personalize the idea of covenant to just those who have children. The idea of covenant is for all Jews. So we're all covenanted in whatever way we were born. And we continue to manifest that covenant in the way we live, in the rituals we practice, in the way that we take our Judaism seriously. So yes, those who can't or don't choose to procreate are still covenanted and still participate in the ongoing covenant between God and the Jewish people every time they perform a Jewish act. So are you suggesting that there is a hierarchy of um, covenant that all are covenanted, but those who may be blessed with the ability to procreate are at a uh, more complete level of covenant? Yeah. No, I never suggested that, and I wouldn't suggest that. I'm, okay. suggesting, I'm suggesting we're all covenanted through being born and, and or Brit Milah, and then we continue to manifest the covenant in the way we live as covenanted Jews. Um, and therefore, there's no hierarchy of covenant. There is no sense um, in anything I've written or spoken that there, one is better than the other. Um, and in fact, in Judaism, we don't have ladders like that. You know, the more commandments you keep, the better Jew you are. Um, we don't, we don't, I don't entertain those ladders. It's a circle of participation. So, um, no, I don't find that there's any hierarchy. And I don't think Judaism would support that notion that there's a hierarchy. And by the way, there's thousands and thousands of Jews who um, couldn't be circumcised, for example, from the former Soviet Union or other places that are still active practicing Jews. So that there's no hierarchy. Right. And, and certainly even today, if people are not circumcised just for medical reasons uh, and not because of choice, there's no exclusion from the covenant. No, no, there's, and even, you know, you know, this rabbi as well as I do that even 
there's no such thing as excommunication from the Jewish community unless you convert right. out, right? As long as you're you, unless you are, unless you, as long as you are a Jew, you could be non-practicing. You could, you know, do things that are really uh, considered to be prohibited by Jewish law, but you still are a member of the community and you still are covenanted as long as you don't walk away and choose something else. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Rabbi Elise Goldstein of City Shul of Toronto, for a fascinating conversation about Genesis 17. I'm sure for some of the listeners, it was an eye-opening introduction into the world of biblical interpretation. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Again, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Elise Goldstein of City Shul Toronto, and wish those who are listening shalom and a good day. Shalom.